0: Hello, I'm Natasha Margolis. I'm with the New Books Network on the Genocide Studies chapter. And today I have with me Carolyn Dean, whose new book, The Moral Witness, recently came out, and we'll be talking with her today about that. Carolyn, it's nice to meet you and have you join our podcast today.
1: Nice to meet you too.
0: And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe your background, your research, um, your classes, and also uh, just a tiny glimpse into what got you started into this book. Oh, sure. I had already written. I had actually started as a French
1: historian and I'd written a lot about the Holocaust from the perspective of a cultural historian, meaning I had kind of stumbled into it writing essays on um, about the gold, a set of scholarly debates that were really controversial are now dated and I was really fascinated by since I'm fascinated by the culture the Holocaust has produced and especially the moral culture it's produced uh this I kind of stumbled on this project too as I was reading various kinds of trials uh to to trying to make sense of the questions about that were circulating when I began the project of Human Rights and the History of humanitarianism, and so I kind of stumbled onto this and and it's been really quite interesting. So I, you know, I've been around for a while. (laughs) I got got my PhD at Berkeley about 20 years ago, a little more, and have moved uh, from California to to the East Coast. And now I'm obviously at Yale and, um, and very happy the book came out and that you, you found it. (laughs) So I don't know if I can elaborate, but that's pretty much where it begins, at least the book and my interests. Yeah.
0: I love the background story and how authors come upon things. It, it really excites me when people say they just stumbled onto it. So um, for stumbling onto something I really would like um, our listeners to hear about the content of your book, because this is not just an accident that happened, but uh, really Fresh. kind of a work of love and commitment that you put into this. So um, could you talk about the title of the book first, The Moral Witness? Yeah,
1: it's actually a a term that's used uh, and you may have heard it used or readers may have heard it used by the Christian evangelical groups uh, to bear witness or to be a witness is primarily it comes from really um, the Christian martyrs who died uh, testifying to the word of God. And it's a it's a metaphor. It, It became a metaphor or in the 19th century for. Uh, victims of various forms of social injustice, like slavery. Uh, and these uh, witnesses would tell the stories of what they had endured at the hands of their oppressors. Or, or, and witnesses could also be abolitionists. So abolitionists called themselves witnesses. This was also very much in a Christian evangelical mode. Um, but of course, there was also a Jewish witnessing tradition and Jew, Jews had been uh witnesses there's a or what we would call a tradition of martyrs since the you know the pre-roman during the roman republic and the and the fights against the struggles against the roman republic uh so so the and, and Jews had their own witnessing tradition and that had its modern manifestation in the attempts to document the pogroms that were uh a, 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 a part of daily life of Jews living in the pale settlement, which is now in Western Russia and was where Jews mostly were forced to live and they were subjected to constant pogroms by ukrainians and and others and the and the Cossacks, the SARS troops, and, and, and they called the people who managed to testify to these events witnesses. So there are many, many different kinds of, uh, many different manifestations of witnessing throughout uh, modern Western history. The last one I'll mention is the, well, two really quickly are, are equated with World War I and the soldiers who went off and came back to witness the violence they had seen. And again, what you can see here is witnessing here in these contexts is always a moral act. So this this term, the moral witness, is a religious term, but it was also taken up by the philosopher Avishai Margolet to mean a moral witness, to mean a secular figure who testifies to something unfathomable, to an experience of victimization that's unfathomable. And he used the Holocaust of European Jewry uh, to, to exemplify that horror uh and what the this kind of new kind of witness so that the so the term is really complicated but that's you know in a nutshell that's really it has a long history and it's been it's used all the time and i just was very i was fascinated by its ability to the ability of the witness to move people to uh change and to respond morally and ethically to various kinds of injustice but i also wondered how the witness had changed over time
0: and um, I think your idea of the moral witness in this book, you know, immediately I would have leapt to conclusions about the Holocaust, but um instead you take us all the way back to the interwar period between World War 1 and World War 2. Could you tell us a little bit about the Righteous Avengers as the first example of moral witnesses? Oh,
1: sure. Um well, I found these two trials. I actually was reading a book by Hannah Arendt called Eichmann in Jerusalem. I don't know if you or your readers would be familiar with that book. Um it was a very controversial book. When it came out, it was basically a compilation of articles she had written on the Jerusalem trial of the Nazi, um, Adolf Eichmann in 1961. And she basically, please interrupt me if I say something you don't think people you think needs more explanation because, um, not everything goes without saying. (laughs) So, (laughs) okay. So, um, so anyway, And Hannah Arendt talked about these two trials, and I realized there was almost nothing about them. And I was very curious because she made it sound as if these trials had somehow, you know, been that the the guys who the the men who testified in them were witnesses. She didn't call them witnesses, but had done something extraordinary and were forced into doing what they did because of the absence of an international criminal tribunal. So I started looking and I I went and looked at the original transcripts of both trials. And they were, of course, these men were not called witnesses, but what was fascinating about them was that they were, uh, they had killed in one case, a a, a, a man from the, uh, near Odessa in the former Soviet Union. Now in Ukraine had murdered the alleged instigators of pogroms against Jews. In the other case, an Armenian had murdered one of the architects of the Armenian genocide. And, and I tried in these trials by virtue of the brilliance of lawyers and legal strategies, essentially put the people who had been killed on trial for the deeds that they had committed and what had driven these men to commit the murders they committed these men. And and so what was amazing was that they became in a way moral witnesses and they were, they were sort of, created that way by the lawyers and the drama of the court. And so they they share a lot of features in a complicated way with the witnesses we assume were the first to be seen as witnesses in the modern period, which is, as you put it, the, the, as you put your finger on it, the Holocaust witness is what we usually think of as the first moral witness in, in our time as a secular witness to genocide.
0: Right. And I think the idea of a, a moral witness in the hom- Holocaust terms is that this is someone who survived the Holocaust. But in the case of these righteous avengers, um, what was their role? Did they survive something? Or are they taking something into their own hands that they think is important?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, what's really interesting about it is that they take something into their own hands, meaning vengeance, which is important. But in the process, because they, it was pretty clear to juries that they were murderers. (laughs) Um, But it was also clear to juries that they had suffered unbearably. They had lost their entire families to a crime, crimes that really didn't have a name. It was pretty clear that war was, you know, uh, war perpetrated, created all kinds of wounds and injuries and traumas. It was also clear that conquest did. But this kind of mass, the the killing of people um, in the course of, you know for for a deliberate targeting of ethnic minorities on the part of a set of perpetrators was not something that had been conceived as such and so what these trials really do is they they sort of create or or shape these men as witnesses as survivors of massacres, even though neither of them really were, they were survivors in the sense their families had died, but they were not themselves there. So they were not really witnesses, but that is, becomes less important in the trial than the way the men are made into survivors of something very new and something that required a new, a, a new kind of imagination. And these, so these men became survivors, but this idea of survival itself uh, as a, as a force, uh, as a, as a sort of, um, important moral theme, uh, and, and people who, and the name, and the kind of names of people who have something to tell us about living a moral life is, and, and the kind of violence human beings commit
0: is, uh, was very new at the time. And I think that's a very good lead into your second chapter where you're talking about camp survivors and in this case, it's the gulags, but they have a lot of similarities. These witnesses with the previous ones before World War Two or sorry, before um, yeah, before World War Two and in the interwar period. Could you tell us about the new the new survivors and witnesses, the camp survivors? Sure. Sure.
1: Um- there and that's the other thing is it's really important for people to remember that Jewish survivors weren't recognized as survivors as even as special victims of the Nazis until the 1960s now within Jewish community it's obviously they were but during and and there was a lot of talk about them there were even novels and and memoirs about about Jewish life under under the third reich and 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 that and that sort of thing but but Primarily, especially in Western Europe and in France in particular, the people that were deemed survivors were res- people who resisted actively and violently the Nazis and were imprisoned in and concentration camps and who were not Jewish. And these tended to be, uh, so they were treated as soldiers and political. Uh, political opponents of fascism and of totalitarianism, and that th- those were the survivors, and those were the people. In, and there's one person in particular, very, very famous in the post-war period, who created the idea of an experience of a concentration camp called the. Con- it's, it's it sounds completely terrible in English, the concentrationary universe, but it was used as shorthand for the camps for years until the Eichmann trial, really. Um, so, and he he was the his work. David Rousset formed the blueprint for Hannah Arendt's later work on totalitarianism and her understanding of the Nazi camp. So the the idea that the man who himself was a, a resistor, a French resistor and who was imprisoned in the camps, came back and wrote about what that experience was. And he kind of created this new concept of the survivor as a special kind of person. But not right. a Jewish person necessarily.
0: Right. And I think that's really important. And, and some even some of the museums and another memorabilia about the Holocaust experience, there's always reference to the revolts and to the resistance fighters, but the people that really survive kind of get lost. So one of the things I found interesting about this chapter and the camp survivor is one of the debates in the court was did Stalin really have concentration camps? Which they called the Gulags, and that seemed to be an issue that was on trial more than a person per se.
1: Right, right. Well, the, the, what they tried to do was these. It's very complicated story, but to make it really simple, essentially the this guy David Rousseau who wrote who who he he sued uh, a communist magazine for defamation because the communists were defending Stalinism and. And they were and he they wrote a nasty article about him. So he sued them for defamation and wanted to use the trial to show showcase victims who had escaped um, the gulag in the Soviet Union in order to show that those victims were victims of Stalin in the same way as victims of Hitler had been victims and that they had both survived what he called a camp system, which was something completely new and had never been seen uh, in the in the world, which, of course, it's also not really true, but we can talk about that separately. Um, And so he tried to argue that Jewish victims and the the victims of Stalinism were the same. And this, you know, had an uneven reception. Nonetheless, what's important is that he focused on this experience of survival of this new phenomenon, camps, which he assumed was the same in the Soviet Union and
0: in under Nazism. In the course of this, there's one person that really interested me a lot who was a witness um, for this libel suit, um, Margareta Buber Neumann, who uh-huh. had the unfortunate experience of being in both the Nazi concentration camps and the Stalin gulags. F- um, do you want to just comment lightly on her since she's, she's not a footnote in your book, but obviously she plays an important role in this shift to the differing types of witnesses that take place. Right. She's pretty amazing.
1: She she's I mean, she basically was a communist, married to a communist, went to the Soviet Union with her husband, who was then um, deemed unacceptable by Stalin for some crazy reasons that had very little to do with anything he did. And she then found herself arrested and was went through various gulags in Siberia, at which time after a couple of years, she then um, was sent by Stalin It was trade. She was traded for some Russian prisoners uh, and as and sent to Hitler and ended up in Ravensbruck, one of the worst women's camps in um, in Germany and survived. So she was she tended to be someone who she wrote a memoir and she also testified at these trials at two of them, um, which I talk about. And it's quite extraordinary because she. Not only had the authority for experience, but what I also emphasize in the book is the way witnesses spoke. And the the courtroom is a special place because of the discrepancy between the witnesses, actual testimony and the horror of what they reveal about their experiences and the kind of legal questioning, which is very, uh, you know, uh, didactic and it can be very cold. And so the contrast was very moving to audiences who because it amplified their testimony and certainly hers which is very dramatic.
0: And I think you do a very nice job of, of talking about the lawyers who kind of almost seem to be in the background, but they're very ingenious how they're approaching these trials. And I think that takes us to what more people would understand as the Holocaust witness. And how has this changed then from the previous to the Righteous Avengers and the camp survivors? Well, now,
1: I mean, uh, I guess what we're mostly familiar with is a Holocaust survivor, though, as uh, as time goes on, that that memory is fading as well. Right. Uh, And it's important that we we know about it. And I think that that was that the Holocaust survivor was really someone who had endured at this point and someone who had endured something that people were not aware of initially after the war, which is extermination camps. Now, people in extermination camps were, were primarily Jews because only Jews, for the most part, were sent to camps where they were killed on the spot. So the Holocaust survivor has a, a different experience. One, they did not volunteer to fight against the enemy. They were, they were put in camps for who they were, and two, that is to say Jewish, and two, they were, by and large, not all of them, but many of them the bulk of those killed in what we call extermination camps rather than labor camps or concentration camps were Jews who were sent to be killed and nothing else. So those those, that, those are the two major differences between the witnesses of the first sort who are able to commit revenge and fight the enemy and people, these survivors, the Jewish survivors who could not. Mainly because of the overpowering military might and terror that the Nazis
0: imposed. I think the strength of your book relies on the fact that you're you're bringing in what are seemingly very important trials, but are, that are not very well known. You could have brought in Nuremberg trials, but as you described in your book, you said that's just more of like a document, paper trial. This is not really about morality in any sense. So. Your book then leads us to the capture and the trial of Adolf Eichmann. And what is the nature of the witnesses who talk about their experiences in the camps that kind of define this new world of genocide and crimes against humanity?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. The the. um I guess the the, what's really striking about the Eichmann trial, and frankly about most trials for genocide after it, and I should say the Eichmann trial in 1961, creates this idea of the survivor, and it it, it's really important because Jews until that time, and in fact victims in general often were of genocides were deemed to be sort of were blamed for going passively to their deaths, and uh, they were there was a lot of shame. Among many Jews, because and in Israel as well, because it was felt that they had simply gone without fighting, and that's why you see the celebrations of the Warsaw Ghetto uprising and other revolts against the Nazis. But they were very rare. So, so the real difference is that these, these testimonies were so harrowing of what. the the Jewish victims experienced in the camps and in killing sites that people were unaware of really what the German murder processes were. And they brought them to light. They were not, as you say, documents as in Nuremberg. And they basically were stories of people who had endured this and somehow survived. And this basically re- redeemed the the, the the idea that they had been passive and, and and showed that there was no way to fight against this violence, and so it really changed opinion about what had happened to Jews in the holocaust and actually sim- and actually put it on the pub in the public's eye. It was the first time it became a public
0: memory and I think it's also interesting how a lot of people refer to the Jewish survivors as heroes when they themselves would never use that terminology for themselves. And Elie Wiesel, um, who's one of the more outspoken and well-known Holocaust survivors, really kind of challenges that notion of heroism. I mean, a hero is what you would equate with resistance and revolts. And what they're really associating it with in these trials is just the sheer act of survival through whatever means right exactly and that's what's really hard to
1: wrap your mind around because it's it's really hard and one of the questions i had is how did we get to a point where in our culture where survival itself becomes a form of of witness right i mean not in a sense that you have been there so you can testify to what happened but becomes and became in the 60s and 70s uh, for jewish survivors a form of almost um you know, a certain kind of glory and, a, and and it meant that you had possessed a certain kind of knowledge. And as you said, a certain kind of heroism, uh, heroism of because you have knowledge of something no one else can fathom, something just almost mystical. Right. And this was something attributed to Jewish survivors, which, as you say, was not something most of them felt. It was really much more about us trying to grasp what this experience must have meant for them. Uh, and, and so I think that this is, and, and, and again, it's also a way, I think that culturally we restore dignity to people whose dignity we feel has been taken away from them in the sense that they did not they could not fight back in the way that resistors chose to. They were murdered because of who they were or put in camps because of who they were in conditions that were so terrible that re- that it's a miracle there were as many revolts as there were. And because of this, I think that we still have this, we still cling to certain ideas of heroism, right? Because that's, it's a far more, uh, to imagine someone fighting back, uh, and demanding that, that, that he or she be respected is a far more stirring image than than that of someone being victimized and not being able to fight back and so somehow the fact of living through this we end up conferring on this survival a certain kind of dignity and that is a very unusual thing uh, and it 's very new and it seems to have arisen not only with the Holocaust but with the nuclear bomb and with the with environmental catastrophe with all of these um, these huge kind of exp- these experiences of man-made disaster that we don't feel we have any control over and that we don't feel we can fight in any simple way at least so we sort of so you have all this you know you have people called survivalists right you have <laughs> you have this whole attachment to survival and the idea of survival which is very very new and it only
0: comes into play in the second half of the 20th century And it makes a lot of sense. And I think the other important thing to notice before there were international crime tribunals like on the former Yugoslavia um, to handle this, the witnesses in the Eichmann trial, they didn't have to testify to his acts or even have be able to recognize him. It's his reputation and what happened to them personally in the camps that the whole trial is based on.
1: Yeah. In fact, all these trials are like that. And that's what makes them so complicated and why they don't fit into any legal history. Because Nuremberg, all of the ones we know about, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the Nuremberg and then again, um, now the International Crimes Tribunal, I think we all forget how new the idea of an international tribunal is to fight crimes or to, to, to um, hold accountable perpetrators of genocide, that that was the that court only started functioning in 2002, even though there were there were ad hoc courts to um, to put on trial perpetrators in the context of Bosnia and then again in Rwanda. But those were ad hoc trials. They weren't the they weren't trials by a court that was stable and international and mandated and 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 it was ad hoc right so what's what's really important about that is to realize how recent this is but also to realize that victims voices used, used to be thought of as really suspect and in most trials victims voices are forensic meaning they are just there to give evidence and they're not supposed to tell their stories right that's not what victims do in court they only can tell stories to the extent they're relevant to the prosecution of a crime but it turns out that in order to really change our culture we needed to hear voices of victims speaking in some way we could say out of turn that is speaking not in a legal manner and a forensic manner but in a moral way about their experiences and conveying them. And this is not something we could argue we should be doing in court. That's not what I'm trying to argue at all. I'm just trying to argue that that it was the voices of such victims that ended up making a difference and making us able to understand the difference or making it a- us able to understand what a genocide might have felt like as opposed to a legal definition of genocide, if that makes sense.
0: Yes. Um, i'm going to ask you the dreaded question that historians we always hate, so about the future um when we talk about the current trials you know leading up to still putting um ninety three year old men who served in camps on trial for the atrocities of World War two, are we going back to a stage where the voices of the witnesses are once again um more about the experiences rather than being able to identify these people and especially since we have both the perpetrators and the witnesses, their population is dying off. Right.
1: Well, there are very, I mean, there, there haven't been that many of them, but to the extent there, there, there have been, usually those trials are not based on victim testimony that isn't reliable. So I I guess I would make a difference between, I would differentiate between the kinds of trials I'm talking about, which from the point of view of most people were were not, such legitimate trials the Eichmann trial itself which we would all agree was a huge accomplishment was not a trial that about which there was a consensus uh, even even up till today there are people that argue that too much leeway was given to the voices of the victims and even if people don't doubt the guilt of Adolf Eichmann the point was about what what does a trial require and right now people often speak as if we, we still give too much credence to the voices of victims in court today, that we coddle them and, you know, I, all kinds of things that the traumatized victim is this big, big, uh, the, the, the point of the courts. And I, you know, I think that the reality is not really true. And, and there are lots of problems with the court that I won't go into, but, but in answer to your very specific question, I, I, you know, I think it, justice requires we bring people to justice that deserve to be brought to justice. And the question is really whether there is enough evidence to put them behind bars. And if there is, then they should be there. If a jury or a judge deems they should be. So uh, I don't I, I think that if victims' memories are unreliable, they're not normally used. They, As you may know, there was a case tried in Israel um, in which a man was convicted uh, mistakenly, but the Israeli court overturned the convictions on the grounds that the witnesses that the man was not who they thought he, who the witnesses thought he was, and uh, they did believe he was someone he wasn't. So clearly, and he ended up being a, a guard in a different camp. <laughs> but so, so they got him in any case. But nonetheless, it's I, I would not endorse. Uh, using victims testimony without uncritically in any court situation.
0: Right. And I think that's a really good point about the, the, the guy who was misjudged, but found guilty at, for another camp um, at a genocide conference that I attended last year. One of the points that was brought up is, you know, as we are losing witnesses to these greater g- crimes against humanity from the Holocaust, we now have a new kind of witness, which is technology and social media and which doesn't have a morality in itself, but its use does. That's
1: a really good way of putting it. Um, I think I didn't talk about social media because in order to do so, I, I talked about photography, but I didn't talk about social media because it is, it presents a technological, uh, you have to be able to talk about about technology and digital technology and how it works. And there's a whole literature about that that's really complicated. But I will say simply that there are one of the things social media has made possible is interaction between witnesses and victims. So journalists often use it from sites, but so do witnesses. And then you have teams of people at a place like Berkeley has this, for example, they have teams of people in a project that actually go and they try to locate uh, witnesses who are trying to tell their stories on social media, so it can be both. But of course, and I, I can just say, of course, the medium is the message. As as we we've known, so we have to figure out when it when the medium is no longer photography or a movie reel, or what 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 does that change about the process? Uh, what we did see is that in Holocaust testimonies, the videos made of Holocaust survivors, and now other survivors of other Genocides like the Rwandan and um, Cambodian genocide, that those that people have written a lot now about how the institution doing the filming and the kinds of people doing the interviewing shape the testimonies that are then uh, recorded. Not not the truth of the story necessarily, but what Mm -hmm. the but the way the story is told. Right. So that shapes what we learn. Right.
0: And I think that your book here has le- now led into a new world for other people to pick up and deal with the social media and the complicated research that goes along with that and the psychological case studies. I was wondering, um, have you thought about what your next project is?
1: yeah i'm gonna I'm writing about bystanders the this category bystanders, meaning most of us right right <laughs> but hopefully not all of us and yeah, I don't know if you've seen anything, but people often now refer to bystanders as sort of anybody on the street who sees something right? Um, it, when there's an event that, uh, that I saw something in the paper, the newspaper during the, the demonstrations, uh, against police violence in Ferguson, Missouri. And there was, a and somebody called it bear that the people showing up were bearing witness. And I thought, what <laughs> that oh, wow. to be a strange way of talking about it. And so I, um, and so what I got, I've been very interested for a long time in the question of, how you understand the concept of a bystander meaning someone in a in the population of say occupied europe who is not uh ideologically or politically say a fascist or a nazi but who is not one of the targeted victim groups a jew for example in this case what exactly how what is the psychology and the social reality of bystanders and there. Are because it seems to be a psycho but it, it seems to be a psychological, a topic about psychology. But in fact, the idea that one should um, actually intervene on behalf of others and the whole idea of a bystander only only emerges after the Second World War. It didn't exist. I mean, sure that you should help strangers. I mean, those are Good Samaritan tales. But the idea that there are people are, that you as a person are obliged to intervene in something that has little to do with you in a situation that doesn't affect you in order to defend, uh, and that you're morally obliged to defend uh, a weaker party is actually a, a, a pretty new idea. Obviously there, there have been ideas like this circulating for a long time, uh, in the 18th century, uh, Voltaire said he, he, we should all be, uh, we should be full of righteous indign- indignation, but that that indignation should be disinterested, meaning we should we should be doing it out of our the sense that we don't want other people to be hurt in our name or whatever so that those ideas have been around. But as general cultural realities that everybody feels they should adhere to, that isn't true. So I've been fascinated by this really slippery category of bystander because it sometimes a bystander can be a perpetrator, sometimes a victim. What is the you know, where what is the status of a bystander and how do we understand that term
0: historically? So that's really the project I'm working on now. I'm very intrigued by that. I remember during the denazification trials, they would label people who didn't collaborate and didn't commit the acts as fellow travelers. And they were immediately allowed to go back to work and resume their lives. And so, you know, we would probably call them bystanders today as well. But putting a moral obligation on them is kind of hard because, as you said, this is only a a new idea. I love the Pentecostal terminology that keeps being used about this of bearing witness and stuff like that. So you're on an interesting path and I look forward to reading more from you. Um, I guess I really would like to thank you for taking your time today out of your work and your busy schedule to talk with us. And um, I hope that you feel like you got the word out about your book better, um, because that's the main point of the New Books Network is to reach a wider audience than maybe perhaps that which is limited to buying academic press books. Yeah. So thank you very much, Carolyn. That's my pleasure. I really
1: appreciate it.